If you would, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 20. Uh, this morning we'll be in the, the closing verses of John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. John 20, verses 24 through 31. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, and the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, in these verses that we have just read, we've seen a stubborn refusal to believe on the part of Thomas. We see the grace of Jesus that has been extended toward Thomas. We see Thomas's confession of Jesus and Jesus's pronouncement of blessing upon those who believe without seeing. And so as we consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under, under four main headings. First of all, the refusal to believe. The refusal to believe. And then secondly, the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. Thirdly, the confession of Thomas. The confession of Thomas. And then fourthly, the blessing of believing. The blessing of believing. And so first we see the refusal to believe. Thomas's refusal. Thomas, whose Greek name was Didymus, both of them signify the, the twin had not been there on that first Easter Sunday evening when Jesus appeared to the remainder of the disciples. We saw that appearance last week in verses 19 through 23. Thomas wasn't there. And the ten, as we would expect, the ten disciples who were there, give Thomas the good news when they see Thomas. They say to him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas wasn't buying it. Thomas had ten eyewitnesses who had seen the Lord, but he wasn't buying it. And so he says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, how many times have you heard that? I have to see it to believe it. Many people seem to use that as an excuse of sorts. Or maybe they say, unless I have more proof, 
I won't believe, or something along those lines. Jesus dealt with a lot of people like that. Back in John chapter 4, verse 48, while he was in Galilee, he said to the Galileans, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. These people like to see the signs and wonders, which Jesus did, but in the end, by and large, they still did not believe. Or consider, for instance, John chapter 6. Jesus had fed the, the 5,000, and when the people saw the, the feeding, they saw this sign that Jesus had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. And then, if you recall how John chapter 6 moves on, Jesus had gone over to the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee, and those who had eaten followed him over to Capernaum. And then they said to him, as recorded in John chapter 6, verse 30, they said, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now many will say that seeing is believing, or that if they saw, then they would believe. But that is simply not true. The scripture bears that out. It's not true. At the very least, it's not always true. Hardness of heart can exist even in the undeniable presence of the miraculous. Jesus did miraculous works, and these people saw it, they experienced it, they ate it, they, they ate the bread that he had miraculously multiplied. And if you had been there that day and had asked those people whether they had seen Jesus perform a miracle for the crowd, I'm sure they would have said yes. But they probably would have had to add a caveat. They would have said, yes, but. Yes, but the one I saw wasn't big enough. Yes, but I need to see at least one more miracle. Yes, yes, but what? Would one more miracle done by Jesus really have brought them to faith in him? Probably not. Probably not. The miraculous works that our Lord Jesus did pointed to his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah who was sent into the world, and they were, they were the evidence of his claims. They were a witness to his claims. But the mere sight of the miraculous is no guarantee that genuine faith and repentance will follow. That is on display in the, the Gospel of John, plain enough, and you see the, you see the same thing in the, in the book of Acts more than once. And so uh, just to give one example, in Acts chapter 4, you'll recall how the, the book of Acts proceeds forward. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal that lame beggar who was there by the temple. And everybody knows about it. Everybody knows what has taken place. The rulers and the elders, the scribes and the Sanhedrin gather together and they start talking about what they should do to Peter and John in light of this. And what they say is very revealing. They say in Acts 4.16, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Everybody knew about this, but it did not automatically bring to faith those who acknowledged the reality of the miracle. The point is, seeing is not believing, and the Bible is very clear about that. And yet, despite this, Jesus bore with the weakness of Thomas. We'll see how Jesus bore with the weakness of Thomas, but we need to acknowledge up front that this is not an exemplary attitude on the part of Thomas. This is just, this is just not good to have this kind of hard-hearted refusal. 
Now, the gospel accounts in the book of Acts don't tell us a whole lot about Thomas. The gospel of John actually tells us more about Thomas than any one of the other gospels. And he shows up basically three times, three times that is, in which we have any significant information about him. In John chapter 11, after Jesus announced to his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas says to the rest of the disciples, let us go also so that we may die with him. It doesn't, doesn't seem to be catching the drift of what Jesus is going to do. He thinks they're going to die or that he's going to die. So he's not, he's not catching the drift. He shows up again in John 14. After Jesus had said, you know the, the way to where I am going, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then we see him again here in John chapter 20. Now if these occasions where we see Thomas speaking were characteristic of him in general, then I think at the very least we have to say that he seems very often slow to get the picture of, of what was happening and what Jesus was trying to communicate and what Jesus was trying to do. Now, in saying that, I'm not saying that he was necessarily behind the pack, right? If we read, if we read the Gospels, uh, the disciples were very often slow as a group to catch on to what Jesus was saying and what he was doing, what he was meaning. And I'm not saying that I would have done any better if I had been there. I might have done worse if I had been where Thomas was. And there may be much more positive and faithful things that Thomas did and said, which for John's own wise reasons, he did not record for us. But the point is, the times that we do see him speaking, it's very clear that there is confusion and slowness to understand and slowness to believe on the part of Thomas. But isn't it quite wonderful then to see just how gracious our Lord Jesus was to this weak and often slow to understand disciple? And that's, that's our second point for this morning. The, the grace of Jesus toward Thomas. Now, even though seeing is not believing, and even though we cannot commend Thomas's disposition of demanding that he see Jesus's hands and place his fingers into the place of his side, yet we still see that Jesus was gentle and gracious to this man. And so it seems that the, the next Sunday, Jesus appeared to them again, and this time Thomas was with them. Now, if you look at verse 26, you'll see the expression that's used there is after eight days. Now, this seems to be a Jewish way of expressing one week. Now, we would normally count a week as seven days, but apparently in Jewish reckoning, they would sometimes refer to a week as eight days. That is, they would start counting on the very day itself. We, if we were counting from one Sunday to the next, we would start our count on Monday, Count up to Sunday, it'd be seven days. In the Jewish reckoning, they would start counting on Sunday and would count up through the next Sunday and have eight days. And we see this, this kind of thing elsewhere, as with, with Jesus in the grave. Jesus is buried Friday, he's in the grave Saturday, he rises from the dead Sunday morning. Though the actual time that Jesus was in the grave was probably somewhere between 36 to 40 hours, yet nevertheless in Jewish reckoning and scripture reckoning, it's counted as three days. I said to say, there are different ways of, of counting things. My father uh, 
served overseas in the military before I was born, and he told me that in the culture where he was serving, that they counted you as one year old when you were born. Now, that's not our way of counting things, but considering that life begins at conception and not at birth, that might actually be a closer reckoning to one's lifespan, but all of that is beside the point. The point here is that by eight days, John's probably speaking of one week later. And if we were to assume that that indeed is the case, then we may be seeing here, in fact, the the early pattern of Jesus' disciples gathering together on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, the day when Jesus rose from the dead. Likewise, we, we see this repeated in the New Testament. We see the disciples gathered together on Pentecost, which uh, seems to have been a Sunday. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We see references also of believers gathering on the first day of the week in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. And though John was certainly not in a church gathering in Revelation chapter 1 when he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, Nevertheless, he makes special mention of the fact that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And if indeed this is the beginning of that pattern of the followers of Jesus gathering together on the Lord's day, then this is a pattern that began then and is continuing on to this very day. The gathering of the disciples that first Sunday after Easter was, was very much like their gathering the week before, right? The doors were shut, the doors were locked. It's explicitly noted up in verse 19 in regard to their gathering on Easter Sunday that they were gathering as they were for fear of the Jews. That's why the doors are shut and locked. And there's a good chance that that's still the reason why the doors are shut and locked now is because they are afraid of the Jews. And yet... As he did the week before, Jesus miraculously comes to them inside that locked room and says to them, Peace be with you. He pronounces upon them that same blessing that he had brought earlier. If you look back up to uh, to verse 19, it's the same blessing that he brought to them the week before. And now he comes again, and verse 26, he brings that same blessing. He says, Peace be with you. And then... He speaks to Thomas. He knew exactly what Thomas had said the week before, and he now appeals to Thomas to do the very things that Thomas had said he would need to do in order to believe. This event and Jesus' concern for Thomas certainly is not meant to teach us that we as people can manipulate Jesus into doing what we want him to do or that Jesus will always meet our demands so that we will believe. This passage teaches nothing of the sort. But what it does teach is the tender compassion of Jesus for one of his own. Thomas here was was being unreasonable when he refused to believe ten ten eyewitnesses who had seen the risen Jesus. Thomas was demanding a standard of proof which he had no right to demand. But yet Jesus so gentle and so forbearing with Thomas. He says to him, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now isn't that good news then, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Obviously we can't approve Thomas's behavior. And obviously we cannot 
demand that Jesus do the same for us. We have no right to expect that Jesus will show up on the earth in the flesh to satisfy the carnal cravings of our unbelief. This was a unique appearance during that period of 40 days between when Jesus rose from the grave and his ascension into heaven. But nevertheless, the kindness and the long-suffering of Jesus has not changed. He still bears patiently with his disciples who are weak, with his disciples who are slow to understand, with his disciples who are slow to believe. Just take, take a good look at the, the New Testament epistles. I think sometimes there's uh, perhaps an unhealthy romanticism about what life in the early church was like. You take a good look at the New Testament epistles and uh, a close and careful reading, or perhaps even a cursory reading, will reveal something far different. The church of Corinth had its fair share of problems, and quite serious ones. Factions, sexual immorality, drunkenness of the Lord's Supper, strife over spiritual gift, a flirtation with the denial of the resurrection. Churches of Galatia also had a problem, even a more serious one than those of Corinth. They were flirting with another gospel, which is not another gospel at all. They were entertaining the possibility of denying the gospel of the free grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, thinking that they can put themselves into God's favor by means of works. Or if you look at the book of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor who are addressed specifically in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, out of the seven of them, five of them had some, some pretty serious things going on. The church of Ephesus had left its first love, Revelation 2.4. The church at Pergamum had some who held to the teaching of Balaam, who had taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and commit acts of immorality. The church at Thyatira tolerated that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess and led the bondservants of Christ astray into idolatry and immorality. The church at Sardis had a reputation of being alive, but was actually dead, and their deeds were not complete in the sight of God. The church of Laodicea was, was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and did not know how wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked they were. But yet still, with all of their faults, Jesus bore with those people. Those assemblies were still called churches. It's noteworthy how in Revelation chapter 1, in writing to those seven churches, John identifies himself, Revelation 1.9, and says, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Now when John identifies himself that way as a brother and fellow partaker in Jesus with these seven churches, he is identifying himself broadly as a partaker with some churches that had some pretty shady stuff going on, some outright wicked stuff going on. The point in all of this is that we can see how Jesus is patient with the weak, Jesus is patient with the erring, Jesus is patient with the downright sinful. The inspired apostles bring to those churches words of rebuke and correction, but also words of comfort, words of brotherhood. Just as Jesus was gentle with Thomas to condescend so greatly to him, so Jesus continues to condescend to weak and erring believers today. And we see evidence of this in how the apostles dealt with the New Testament churches in all of their weakness and all of their sins. Now, 
I say none of this at all to be an excuse for sin and no encouragement to continue on in weakness, no call for being presumptuous upon the grace of Christ, but it is a comfort to the weak and the erring and the sinful that Jesus does not break a bruised reed, nor does he put out a smoldering wick. Now Jesus is gracious and tender to the weak and struggling, and as such, this is not only a comfort to us in regard to our own weakness and wandering when we wander from Christ, but it is also an example to us in how we ought to love the brotherhood of believers. I think J.C. Ryle was quite helpful when he said, Our Lord cares tenderly, speaking of Thomas, for this weak member of his mystical body, and specially appears in order to heal and restore him. What a wonderful example he gives to all his people. How kind we ought to be to weak brethren, and how ready to take any pains and trouble if we can only do them good. The Christian of modern times who is ready to excommunicate everyone who cannot speak his shibboleth and see every point of doctrine and ceremonial as he does, who is ready to turn away from every brother overtaken in a fault, seeing him as graceless, godless, and unconverted. Such a Christian may flatter himself that he is very zealous and faithful, but he is a Christian who has not got the mind of Christ. What Christ did for Thomas, we ought to be ready to do for others. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we coddle that which is sinful. But it does mean that we obey the words of Galatians 6.1, where Paul says that if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And so praise be to God for the loving kindness of Jesus that we see expressed here toward unbelieving Thomas. And as we'll see, this loving kindness of Jesus was not without its fruitful effect. And so we see here the confession of Thomas, which is our, our third point. Coming to verse 28, Thomas's confession is found there. Jesus had appeared, coming miraculously there into the room while the doors are locked. And after he had bid Thomas to touch his wounds, just as Thomas had desired to do, we find that Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. Now, we don't know one way or the other whether, Jesus, whether Thomas actually reached out and touched Jesus or whether just seeing Jesus and being invited to reach out and touch him was all that it took for Thomas to believe. We don't know for sure. But what is very clear is that upon seeing Jesus, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. He called Jesus Lord and God, for so he is. Seeing Jesus alive from the dead made it clear to Thomas that Jesus was indeed Lord and God. Now, Thomas had already referred to Jesus as Lord back in John 14, 5, when he said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? But to be fair, sometimes as we read through the Gospels, it can be a little bit tricky to tell when someone refers to Jesus as Lord whether they're intending to signify deity or whether they are simply speaking respectfully, as if saying sir or master. But now, here in John 20, what was potentially ambiguous back in chapter 14, when Thomas referred to Jesus as Lord, now Thomas's mind is much clearer on the subject. He refers to Jesus not only as my Lord, but also as my God. He recognizes that Jesus is none other than God himself. 
And this confession fits so nicely, doesn't it, with the way that John had opened up his gospel back in in John chapter 1 when he spoke of the Son of God by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word is none other than the Son of God. The Word became flesh, Jesus Christ our Lord. But despite the the clarity which now shines forth in Thomas's mind and the clarity with which John has made the deity of Christ clear all through the gospel, nevertheless, there are those who throw shade on this testimony and make it not quite as clear as the word of God makes it. And so, for instance, I heard a story in which there was a, a Christian who was witnessing to a Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witnesses obviously deny the, the deity of Jesus, and they, they brought them uh, that Jehovah's Witness to John chapter 20. And uh, they showed them this passage where, where Thomas confesses to Jesus and says, My Lord and my God. And uh, to that, the Jehovah's Witness replied, that what was happening here in John chapter 20 is not a confession of the deity of Jesus, but rather an exclamation of surprise in which Thomas simply took the Lord's name in vain. In other words, Thomas blatantly broke the third commandment right there in front of Jesus. But I would point out in reply that it is explicit that Thomas is not simply speaking here into the air or to no one in particular. Rather, what we find in the text is that Thomas answered and said to him, he's saying this to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Thomas addresses Jesus in this way. And he'd already referred to Jesus as Lord, and now he addresses him both as Lord and God. This is Thomas's confession of who Jesus is. And notice here also that he didn't simply say that Jesus is Lord and God, Jesus is God, and Jesus is Lord, regardless of how we respond to him. But Thomas places here that all-important my in the statement. He declares that Jesus was his Lord and his God. He said, my Lord and my God. This demonstrates that he places his faith in Jesus and submits to Jesus as his Lord and his God. And the call of the gospel demands not only that we recognize the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done, but also that we submit to him as Lord and God and place our personal faith in him. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who became incarnate for us, who became a man and died for sinners on the cross and then rose again three days later. He ascended then to the right hand of the Father as our great high priest and mediator. We have to believe these things in order to be Christians. You can't be a Christian without believing these things. But yet, interestingly enough, it is not simply enough to grant the historicity of these things. Simply acknowledging these realities as facts is going no further than what has traditionally been called historical faith. Historical faith is not saving faith. You can believe all of the facts but yet not trust in Jesus. Saving faith, on the other hand, is the kind of faith that not only believes these true historical facts about Jesus, but also comes to Jesus with a hearty and personal trust in Jesus for salvation, recognizing that we ourselves are sinners, that we need 
the benefit that comes from what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. We need the forgiveness of sins. We need Jesus' justifying righteousness to be ours. Saving faith is a personal and hearty trust of the kind that joins with Thomas and says, my Lord and my God, when we're talking about Jesus. Saving faith is that kind of personal and hearty trust that joins with Paul when he said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And though faith in Christ is not identically the same thing as repentance, which is the turning away from sin, yet nevertheless, where there is true faith, there will also always be true repentance. The two must go hand in hand together. And they always do go hand in hand together. And so as we say it in our confession of faith, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God. Faith and repentance are inseparable graces. They always go together in the persons in whom they are found. And so, friend, my invitation to you this morning is to join with Thomas in confessing Jesus as Lord and God and as your Lord and your God. So turn to Christ in faith and turn away from your sins. And if you have more questions about about what this means... You can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what this means. This is truly a wonderful confession of Thomas that we see in verse 28. Now, we've seen here the way that Jesus has been very patient and very gentle with Thomas. We've seen how he condescends to even address his unreasonable demands. But... In verse 29, Jesus gives to Thomas a gentle rebuke. And he also pronounces a blessing upon those who believe apart from seeing. And this is our uh, next point for this morning, which is the blessing of believing. Jesus says there to Thomas, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Some interpreters here would prefer to translate that first portion of Jesus' statement there as a statement and not a question. In other words, they would read it as Jesus saying, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now in in speaking as he, he does there to Thomas, Jesus is doing a few things here. First, we should notice that Jesus receives the confession of Thomas as a confession that was fully appropriate. Thomas received no rebuke, no correction, no chastisement for calling Jesus my Lord and my God. Jesus received those words unto himself as fully appropriate. And, obviously, Jesus did not rebuke Thomas for taking the Lord's name in vain because that is not what Thomas is doing. He received it as an address to himself. And he did not rebuke Thomas for making that address to him. Now, if you think of uh, how you should respond if someone were to come up to you and say the things to you that Thomas said to Jesus, we ought to respond in a completely different manner altogether and say, no, absolutely not. And uh, to that point, 
we would need to do like Paul and Barnabas did in Acts chapter 14 when the crowd came out trying to offer them sacrifices thinking that they were the gods Zeus and Hermes. When Paul and Barnabas saw this, they tore their clothes and said, don't do this. We're here to try to tell you to stop doing this. There is a true God. You need to worship him. Or think of what John did in Revelation 22, 8 and 9. This, this angel had, had come to John and John says that he fell down at the feet of this angel to worship him. The angel said, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of you and your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. That's how we ought to respond. That's how any godly person would respond. If someone comes up and says, my Lord and my God, we would say, absolutely not. There is a God, you worship him. But Jesus says no such thing here in response to Thomas's words. And this indicates that Jesus was pleased with the words of Thomas. And Jesus also acknowledges the faith of Thomas. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Thomas is obviously unreasonable in his demands. He's slow to get on board. Yet nevertheless, Jesus acknowledges Thomas as a believer. How encouraging is that? With all of his shortcomings, all of his slowness to believe, all of his unreasonableness and all the rest, Jesus didn't shut him down. Jesus did not disown him. He acknowledges Thomas as one of his own. And this should be encouraging for those of us who are more like Thomas than we ought to be. Jesus loves, Jesus receives the weak and slow believers just as he did in the case of Thomas. But nevertheless, those words of Jesus, because you have seen me, you have believed, also imply a gentle reproof. The implication is especially when we compare this first phrase with what follows, is that Thomas should have actually believed without seeing. Indeed, Jesus pronounces there a blessing upon those who believe without seeing. He says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We gather from this that Jesus rose from the dead and that believing that this is the case is possible without seeing him. And indeed, the New Testament makes it very clear that this is the norm. This is, this is what God planned for most people who come to saving faith in Christ to believe that he rose from the dead apart from visible sight. Now, Jesus certainly did appear to many people. He appeared to the women on that first Easter Sunday. He appeared to the disciples Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to more than 500 all at one time. He said that he appeared to James, and then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me as to one untimely born. And so, on the one hand, more than 500 people is a, is a decent number of people who got to see the risen Jesus in the flesh. But, on the other hand, that's a pretty small number compared to the population of the world. Especially, that's a pretty small number even compared to the number of Christians over the course of history. And this is the way that Jesus intended it. The faith of those first ones could be based on sight. But the faith of most would be based on the testimony of those who did see. Peter expressed it this way when preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10, uh, verses 40 to 42. He said, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people 
and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. In other words, this is the normal way by which men and women become believers, become Christians, is by hearing and receiving the testimony of those who were witnesses. Indeed, as Paul says in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. And likewise, Peter said, as we read together this morning, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Whereas Paul would express it in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. The Christian life is thus began in faith and continued in faith. For the, and for the overwhelming majority of Christians, this has meant believing in a risen Christ whom they have not seen. And Jesus here pronounces his blessing upon all who do that very thing. Blessed are they who did not see and yet have believed. Meanwhile, however, the world thinks that this is foolishness. They say, but there's no proof. Those were the exact words of a man that I was speaking with when I worked at UPS back in the day. I don't think we were specifically talking about the resurrection of Jesus, but we were talking about God or Jesus or the Christian faith. I can't remember precisely. And he said to me, but there's no proof. And Christians have been confronted with this, that our religion rests on faith. Where's the proof of it? What can be said? One early commentator on the Apostles' Creed, a man named Rufinus, who was an elder in the church of Aquileia, which is what we would know as northeast Italy today, writing about the year 390, said that even in his day, pagans are wont to object to us that our religion rests solely on belief. But in order to answer such a charge, Rufinus argued that nothing can possibly be done or remain stable unless belief Precedes. He says, no one embarks upon the sea or trusts himself to the deep and liquid element unless he at first believes that it is possible that he will have a safe voyage. He said, a farmer won't sow his seed unless he believes that the rain will come and the sun will shine and the winds will be favorable and that the earth will bring forth its crops. In short, he says, nothing can be transacted if there be not first a readiness to believe. I think the line of reasoning there from Rufinus is absolutely right. We're going to believe something. There's really no way around it. Everyone believes something. Everyone has a creed of sorts to which they adhere. The world thinks itself to be wise to hold up science as the standard by which all things must be judged. But the belief of modern agnostic or atheistic thinkers is not always as scientific as they claim. They, too, believe in things they cannot see, they, too, believe in things they cannot prove, and they, too, believe in things that are not verifiable in a laboratory. You have to believe something, or you simply cannot function in the world. So what are you going to believe? Well, belief in any truth is based upon the testimony of the witnesses. As the English theologian John Pearson pointed out, the strength and validity of every testimony must bear proportion with the authority of the testifier. And the authority of the testifier 
as founded upon his ability and integrity. His ability in the knowledge of that which he delivers and asserts. His integrity in delivering and asserting according to his knowledge. Though the point is, is that we give testimonies different weight depending on who is giving the testimony. The authority of the one giving the testimony then is going to be based on their knowledge of the facts of the case and their integrity in delivering those facts to us truthfully. Some sources we don't trust because they lack knowledge. They don't know anything, so we write them out. Some sources we don't trust because they lack integrity. There may be some sources that we don't trust for both reasons. The Christian faith, however, is founded first and foremost on the testimony of God himself. And so we read in 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, that if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. The Holy Scriptures themselves are the testimony of God concerning his Son. And so Peter says, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the prophets and the apostles spoke by the immediate revelation of the Holy Spirit as the Spirit bore witness to them and the Spirit also bore witness to the truth of their words by the miracles which were performed by the apostles, of which we read in the book of Acts. And those who believed the preaching of the apostles, we were told of them that they received the word not as being the word of men, but rather they received it for what it really was, the word of God, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. God has all knowledge and is truth itself. And this means that the testimony that he has given concerning his Son by means of the Holy Spirit inspiring the apostles and their associates to write the Scriptures is true. God has all knowledge and cannot be mistaken in regard to the facts. And it is impossible for God to lie, as we find in Hebrews 6.18. So the Scriptures are the testimony of God. And the apostles who wrote the New Testament were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, as we've seen. And the scriptures have proven themselves to be true in the realm of history. And so archaeological evidence often confirms the truth of what has been recorded. Sometimes people will come along and they'll say, well, we don't think such and such an individual ever existed. And then what do you know? They find an inscription that reveals, well, yeah, there actually was such an individual of which the scripture writers made mention. And so the scriptures have proven themselves true historically. They've also proven themselves true prophetically. And we see this in the the scriptures present to us a long line of prophecy and fulfillment. So many things in the scriptures pertain to things yet to come. But so many things in the scriptures that have been prophesied have already been fulfilled. And we can look back and see that. So the scriptures have proven themselves true historically and prophetically, and I would add a third to that as well. They have also proven themselves true personally. In the countless times in the lives of men and women, Men and women who received the scriptures as the testimony of God and have placed their faith in the risen Christ and their lives have been changed as a result. They have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And as John 
points out in verses 30 and 31, this is why he wrote these things down. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John himself was an eyewitness of these events. He was there on those two Sundays when Jesus appeared in that locked room to the disciple. And he wrote these things down for you. He wrote them down for me so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Or, as some would prefer to translate it, so that you may believe that the Christ is Jesus. And I wonder if that might actually be a, a, more, helpful, a more helpful way of thinking about what John is, is getting at here. On the, on the surface, it might not, might not seem to make much difference. That you might know that Jesus is the Christ, or that you might know that the Christ is Jesus. But if we think about John and his writing, and if we think about the, the Jewish culture of the time, they expected that their Messiah, their Christ, was coming. They're, they're looking for him. Who is he? And so if the question is, who is the Christ? Who is this long-promised, long-awaited one of whom the prophets in the Old Testament foretold? John's answer in this gospel, unequivocally, is that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God. And hasn't, hasn't the apostle made his case quite well in the book? John the Baptist was sent as his forerunner and proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus was asked for a sign in John chapter 2 to, to validate his authority for casting out the money changers of the temple, he said this, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he pointed out that the, the bronze serpent in the wilderness was, was pointing ahead to him. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is the one who can heal the lame. Jesus is the one who can give sight to the eyes of a man born blind. Jesus is the one who can give his flesh and blood for the life of the world. He can raise dead Lazarus. As he died on the scripture, John pointed out again and again how the scriptures were fulfilled. Jesus raises himself from the dead in accordance with the scripture. He appears to his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit. Who else is the Christ but this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ? These were the kinds of things which the Christ was to do. And John has written them down for us so that we may believe that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God, the Word may fledge. And John has written these things down so that you and I may believe and that by believing we may have life, abundant life here, eternal life hereafter with God. So let's believe in Jesus today. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and his coming and for uh, what he has done for us, that his uh, blood truly has taken away the sins of all who trust in him. We ask, Lord, that we would not be unbelieving, but that we would believe, and that in believing we would have life in his name. We give you thanks for Christ and for his coming, for his blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.